weak. You are strong. So be the strength of your people. May their joy be undiminished. May they be in your word and catch the rest that they need and know that they are loved. They are robed in the righteousness of Jesus, washed in the blood and filled with your spirit. And someday, someday, there will be no more sickness, no more hurts, no more heartaches, no more colds or sniffles or flus or coughs. And we'll be in glorified bodies, giving you praise, honor, and worship forever, and exploring an endless universe. We love you, Lord, and commit this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. <coughs> the book of Colossians. A church that Paul never visited. It's interesting, he writes so many epistles that we have before us in the New Testament. And he writes a, a church seemingly out of the blue that uh, he's, he's never even been to before. And you're wondering, well, what's the deal with that? Well, the deal was that Paul had been teaching the church at Ephesus for about three years. And during that time, there was a, a young Greek man by the name of Epaphras that had heard Paul's teaching, had given his heart and life to Jesus Christ, and then took that message, the gospel of Jesus, back to his hometown a few miles away of Colossae. Now, Colossae, back in the day, 150 years before, had been a huge commercial center of the Roman Empire, and it was a, a big city, a notable city, and it had been in decline ever since. Its heyday had long passed. Think of something like gold rush days up in Victor, Colorado. And, and it's only a shadow of its former self today when you go up there. Delightful little town tucked behind Cripple Creek, but you think, boy, when it had tens of thousands of people there in the gold rush days, it must have been amazing. Well, that was Colossae in a nutshell, a town that was on the decline but a town that needed Jesus, of all of the churches that Paul addressed, all of the towns, this is the smallest town and the smallest church. This little home church meeting there probably was half a dozen people meeting in a man's home, just studying the Word of God. Most people today would say, well, that's an unimportant and insignificant church. Not to God. Not to God. These people were hungry for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were brand new Christians, which made them an easy target for cultish teaching. There was an ad hoc mixture uh, that some people had brought to their newfound Christian experience that combined ancient Judaism and its rituals and its holidays and its dietary laws, and then combined that with a, a new heresy that was beginning to crop up called Gnosticism. It wouldn't become a full-blown heresy for another century, but the roots of it had infiltrated the church here. It had infiltrated subtly. All heresies do. Do you realize historically most heresies that have attached themselves to the church have begun in Orthodox churches by Orthodox church teachers and preachers? It's interesting to, to look back on it. You look at people like the Moonies, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you wonder where did these cultish figures come from? <clears throat> Most of them had roots in orthodoxy. Mormonism had come out of Joseph Smith, who in New York had become attached to a spiritual movement called the Second Great Awakening, except that then Satan quickly perverted that and appearing as an angel of light to him, led him down astray, and that heresy is still with us today. It's a heresy that, just like this Colossian heresy, diminishes the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mormonism teaches that Satan and Jesus are brothers. What? To me, I, I, I have great difficulty moving past that. That there are three heavens? Where's that in Scripture? That you can be the young God of your own planet if you're good enough? Where is that found in Scripture? But these cultic teachings have become popularized by charismatic figures. Something is not true just because the person who speaks the heresy is charismatic. But that's what your flesh is drawn towards. 
<clears throat> there is a teaching out there today that has been with us for, oh, 40 or 50 years now, but it is a fairly new heresy that really amplifies the wealth of this world is yours for the asking. The health and wealth and prosperity doctrine, except that we know you're not healthy, you're not wealthy, and you're not prospering. So what's wrong with that heresy? How is it that it's sold? Because the giving then becomes a one-way street to enrich the heretics and keep the church poor. So the teaching out there today is send us your monies, plant your seed faith money, and, and God will reward you a hundredfold. There is nothing like that found in Scripture unless you take the briefest portion of Scripture and deliberately twist it to your own personal advantage. That's what was going on in Epaphras' home church. He's just got a little home fellowship going on. Who would bother? Satan would. Satan would love to infiltrate every church in America with heretical teaching, but it always begins with an orthodox person getting away from orthodox teaching. How can you tell truth from error? Thy word is truth, Jesus said. Sanctify my people by it. This is it. If you're not in the word of God, and especially as a new Christian, you too can become an easy target for the cults. In fact, I have talked to them and they said they prefer to pray on brand new Christians that are seeking God but don't know what they believe because they're not in the word of God and they're easily manipulated. I've been told that by the cults. They prey on people that aren't well grounded in Scripture. You should know the Word of God, so then you'll know heretical teaching whenever it comes along, in whatever form it comes along in. This is the Word of God. This is what keeps us safe. This Word of God is free from denominationalism. It's free from bias. It steps on everybody's toes sooner or later. It is not racist. It is not sexist. It is the Word of God. And it's written by a God who loves you. Can I tell you that? He loves you. So don't get caught up in a dialogue that is not biblical. May the words that come out of your mouth represent the fact that you've been in God's Word. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If you're not in the Word of God, what are you in? If God himself is not programming you through his Holy Spirit, through the reading of his Word, is the world doing that instead? Is your iPhone doing that? Is your computer programming you in the ways of the world? Is television telling you what to believe? Or do you stand on the Word of God? This is the only thing that will last forever. Had been an important town. It's now a minor backwater town, but one that very much is on the heart of God. All you have to do to refute heresy and false teaching is to teach the Word of God. Just teach the Word of God. That's why we don't teach books in this church. I don't cherry-pick scriptures to match a personal theological bent. We go chapter by chapter, word for word, book by book, through the Bible. That's the way God read it. He wrote it. That's the way we should absorb it without changing. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. A long time ago, we had an FBI agent here in our church. He was a fun guy. I love it. He gave me an FBI cup that still sits on my windowsill in my office. We had a discussion one time. In fact, we may have been in this very book. And he, I said, well, how do you guys differentiate? He was on the counterfeiting uh, end of things. How do you differentiate between a counterfeit $100 bill and a real $100 bill? I said, there, there must be 10,000 permutations out there and things that get right or the counterfeiters get wrong. How in the world do you do all that? You must spend your whole time studying all of the different ways these guys do it. And he goes, no, 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 no. That's exactly the opposite of what we do. He said, we only study the original. Then we can spot the truth. But we know everything there is to know about a legitimate $100 bill. We know when they're washing $1 bills to retain the paper and re-inking them, reprinting them. He said, we've got all that because we know what the original is. So we study it and know it like the back of our hand. What an application of the Word of God. Study the book. Don't study other books until you've got a perfect handle on this one. 
People are always asking me, well, what, what book should I add to my library, Pastor Jim? A Bible. Well, what other book? Another Bible, <laughs> maybe an alternate translation, maybe a, a concordance so you can find particular words in the Bible, maybe a good study Bible, maybe an encyclopedia of the Bible. But don't, don't get off on a rabbit trail if it's not the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's your safeguard in this life. Otherwise, you can so easily, even with the best of intentions, fall into false teaching. It sounds spiritual, it sounds good, it sounds right. Joseph Smith. And you go, how come you know so much about Joseph Smith? When I was a six, in sixth grade in New York City, I was recruited by the Mormons. I had been a good Catholic kid, but I didn't understand Catholicism because I'd been through confirmation and all the rest of it, but sitting through a, a Latin mass for me I, I'd rather have a root canal. It was painful. I didn't like, I didn't know where I was at. I got lost in the books. I didn't know whether to stand up, bend down, kneel or genuflect or spin around and spit nickels. I didn't know. I was always lost in the service. I didn't understand the robes. I didn't understand the swingy smell and pot going down the middle of the aisle. I, I just, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Of course, none of it was found in the Word of God. It typified religion, and all it did was confuse a sixth grader. Finally, we went to the New York World's Fair in 1963. I was nine years old. And one of the exhibits they had when you walked not too far in the front gates of the New York World's Fair was a miniaturized uh, Mormon temple from Salt Lake City. And it had in there a diorama, and you could check out all of the stuff around there and the story of Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints Church. They prefer to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints versus Mormonism because Mormonism is known to be a cult. Sounds a little more legit when you say, no, 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 we're a church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But their teaching is heretical. It's taught out of the Book of Mormon, not the Bible. Interesting, but, but Joseph Smith <clears throat> had brought this teaching in about 1820 and was told... He had told his followers that he had an angelic visitation that gave him a special pair of eyeglasses. Okay. I don't know elsewhere in the Bible where an angel shows up and says, here, you need these. Take, take my glasses. So anyway, he, Joseph takes the glasses, and then the angel gives him some golden tablets that supposedly contain Hebrew hieroglyphics. Well, from a historical standpoint, I have a problem. Hebrew is not a cuneiform language. It's not a pictographic language. It has an alphabet. There were no images on there. That he, it's not ancient Hebrew, whatever language the angel told him it was, but he needed the special glasses to interpret it. So there's so many things wrong already. The angel told him the Word of God is not sufficient. This is the Book of Mormon, and he wrote that down. Except that we have great difficulty... In fact, it is an impossibility to ascertain the archaeologically factualness of anything having to do with Mormonism. The hundreds of cities that are named there, they've not found one ever since 1820. Not one. It's a fraud. It, it's, and yet it's been perpetuated as a lie because you know what? Mormons are nice people. They're nice people. There's an emphasis on family and that draws a lot of people in. Well, that's that just makes sense to me that Satan would do that. How many of you are fishermen in here? You ever go fishing with a bare hook? Have much luck? Got to hide the hook with bait, don't you? Mormonism does the same thing. <coughs> they got to cover it in what sounds like orthodox teaching and godliness and family values. And everybody says, well, they must be really nice people. Well, they are. They've just believed a lie. Because if you measure out their teaching against the Word of God, it exposes all that is wrong within that cultic movement. If niceness was all it took you to get into heaven, Jesus came for nothing. They're nice people, but nice people can miss the gospel of Jesus Christ all day long. <coughs> so Paul writes this 
small, teeny little church in the backwater town saying that it is important that you stick with the Word of God and understand who Jesus Christ is. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about prosperity. It's not about being God of your own planet and your own world according to Mormonism. It's not about all of those. It's about Jesus. And that's why the New Testament is all about Jesus. The Old Testament tells us God's plan that brought us to Jesus being revealed in the New Testament is the Son of God. Don't study the, the fake stuff. If a Jehovah's Witness gives you some of their cultic material, I would encourage you to destroy it. Don't pass it on. I wouldn't even put it in the trash because the trash man might read it. I'd just stick in the fireplace. You know, it's never going anywhere at that point. Stick with the Word of God. Stick with the Word of God. Paul would write them then as he introduces himself <clears throat> to a church that he'd never met. And it was customary, like Paul does here, to put the writer's name at the beginning of the letter instead of trying to figure out who wrote it until you get to the very end. Makes more sense. He'd never visited this church, but no doubt approved its being established in the during the three years that he was in Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Apostle means one who is sent. Not all are called to be apostles. In fact, it is God himself who calls apostles. It is not man. I cringe when people today call themselves apostles. I cringe. It is God that makes men into apostles. It's not something a man chooses for himself or a title that he takes upon himself. In fact, Paul in one of his other writings would say, I have done the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles. So anybody that takes the title apostle today Show me the signs and wonders and miracles that Paul and Peter and the other apostles did. Then I'll let you wear the title. Till then, you don't deserve it. It's not God-given. It's man-ordained. I don't care who man ordains. I care who God ordains. He had ordained Paul to be an apostle. And notice it is by the will of God. Do you know what the will of God is? It's the will of God that is mentioned, that phraseology, dozens of times throughout the Bible. And it tells us what the will of God is. You should research that a little bit. In fact, we've written a paper that we keep out here on the foyer rack, how to know the will of God. Because people are all the time saying, well, Pastor Jim, how do I know the will of God and, and the will of God in this situation, that situation? Should I sell this house or buy this car? What, what should I do? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back up a little bit. It's the will of God that you serve him that you love him, that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If we can't start with that, you're never going to know anything past that. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Have you submitted everything to him? That's where it starts. It is God's will. How should you discern the will of God? By prayer, the word of God, godly counsel. It is God's will that you be holy, that you be pure. We know what God's will is in these areas. That's what we need to start with. Then you can feel free to ask him about cars and houses and jobs and stuff like that. But make sure that the totality of your life is in sync with your heavenly fathers. That you're in the word of God, that you're in prayer. Discerning the will of God can sometimes involve fasting and godly counsel and, and other means. But his word is absolutely foolproof. His Holy Spirit will lead and guide us. And he writes, verse 2, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. This handful of people may have been half a dozen, half a dozen folks in this little home fellowship. <clears throat> they had been made holy, and they pursue holiness. Understand that you've been made holy, declared holy, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because you've repented of your sins, because you've asked him to be your Lord and Savior. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are positionally perfect in God's eyes. But if you looked in the mirror this morning, there's still a lot of work to be done. 
You're still a work in progress. So while you have been declared holy and perfect in God's sight, he wants you to keep pursuing personal holiness and godliness. That's the pursuit of every Christian. To those who were faithful, let's take apart that word, full of faith. Does that describe you? Full of faith. That's what I want to be. Faith in who? Jesus Christ. In fact, that phraseology, in Christ, that we see there in verse 2, it's mentioned 13 times in this brief epistle of just four chapters. 13 times. Can I tell you, all of life you can put under the umbrella of in Christ. Does Christ have control over everything in your life? Yeah. Did he see everything that you're going through 10,000 years ago? Yeah. Does God have a plan for your life to get you through those trials? Yes. Is he, go- is he going to take you to heaven someday? Yes. Is your eternal home with him assured? Absolutely. So don't get so uptight about the things that happen here. This too shall pass. Trials come and go. They point me in the direction of Christ, and he gives me strength to get through them. In Christ. Well, I'll tell you what, that's an important concept doctrinally. It doesn't much matter how much faith you have, but the object of your faith is everything. I have but a little faith, but that faith is in a great big God who's able to do anything, who's able to do everything. In Christ, that's my real identity, isn't it? That's who I really am. It's not what I do. It's not our past, our present, our our future, our education, our financial status. Who we really are is who we are in Christ. I'm a child of God. It's not because I earned it or deserve it. But when I said yes to Jesus Christ and he forgave me my sins, he adopted me into his own family. It's like when my daughter married my praise and worship leader up here. I thought, well, I'm not losing a daughter. I'm, I'm gaining a son. And what a cool son he is. I just love Pups. He, I don't know if you know this. Pups started playing praise and worship uh, with us here in the band when he was four years old. Played a little plastic guitar with rubber bands on it. And his mom asked me 30-plus years ago, well, can he, can he just stand up there and just play his little guitar while you guys practice? Little Pupsy. So he'd stand up here right beside me, and he would just be wailing away on his rubber band guitar, you know, while we were practicing. And he had such a heart for praise and worship. And never did I think when he was four years old that here we'd be later, and he's giving me a grandchildren and married to my daughter. And oh, it's wonderful. Family to me is everything. All of my kids are saved. All of my grandkids are, are, are under the umbrella of the faith of their parents. I just love that. There is nothing that binds us together more than who we are in Christ. I can love you. I don't care what your likes or dislikes are, your political affiliation, your skin color, your age. These things mean absolutely nothing to me. It, what we have in common is Christ Jesus, and that's what we'll walk into eternity with. That's how you need to see everybody on this planet, either a Christian or a pre-Christian. <laughs> you know, it's God's will that everybody be saved. So let's love him into the kingdom of God. Let's pray him into the kingdom of God, and add, let's act like the family that we are. Love covers a multitude of sins. Oh, you don't know the last church I came out of. They were so dysfunctional. You were expecting what? You were a part of it. An imperfect church is made up of imperfect people. You can't drag your problems from one church to the next hoping that all of your problems go away. But as we grow in Christ together, under the Word of God, no fault, no fault finding, no finger pointing, let's just grow together. That's what Paul was doing to these unbelievers he never even met. He says, I love you guys. How can he do that? He didn't even know them. He'd never met them. They were in Christ. They were family. That was enough for Paul. He could love them. Love each other. Starts in your heart. It spreads in your home. It illuminates your work. And it's what you bring to church. Love covers a multitude of sins. The greatest of these, Paul said, of everything that he mentioned there in first, the greatest of these is love the fruit of God's Holy Spirit, to the holy, 
the ones made holy, verse 2, and faithful brothers in Christ the Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Paul, I, I noticed this, and I'd wonder why he always puts it in that order. It's always grace first and peace second. And I wondered, there's something to that. Why? You can't experience peace until you experience grace. Until you've experienced the grace of God, you won't have the peace of God in your heart. Once, until you've bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, ask Him to wash away all of your sins, only then do you have peace with God so you can experience the peace of God. Once you experience His grace, His peace follows naturally. I, I just want to pause here briefly because there's too many anxious Christians these days. Too many fretful Christian teenagers. Too many fretful Christian parents wondering about the outcome of their kids. These are times that, that cause Christians to wonder what in the world is going on. Well, the countdown has begun. Christ is coming. That's what's going on. He said things are going to go from bad to worse. What part of that didn't you understand? Isn't it going to get better? Nope. <laughs> and if it does, it'll be, it'll be brief. It'll be temporary. We're looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the establishment of his kingdom. And until he comes, I will be holy and pursue that. I will be faithful. I will be faithful. Be a faithful Christian. Faithful to prayer. Faithful to his word. Faithful to love one another. I just want to simplify this for you. Because you tend to complicate things. I'm going to give this to you simple. Just take this one home this morning because you tend to, you can overthink this real bad. Love one another. Okay? Who did not understand that? Can I see your hand? I'll try to put it in a language you can understand. Although that's the only language I speak, so I, maybe I can get an interpreter up here or something. Love one another. Not make excuses for why you don't love one another. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Love covers a multitude of wrongs. So there's not their problem, it's yours. Own it. Own it. Take that to the cross. Jesus, I'm struggling. This person that hurt me so long ago, I, I can't forgive them. Have you asked God to forgive them? It's a judicial issue not based on your feelings. When the judge's gavel comes down, feelings have nothing to do with it whatsoever. When Jesus declares us innocent, absolved of all guilt, we're washed clean, we're purified. If I have the, Jesus said, love your enemies. And we make excuses why we don't. You can't do that. You don't have that freedom. And you say, well, you ask me to love my enemies. I can't even love my family. They're so stinking dysfunctional. I can't love my brothers and sisters. I work with people that hate me, and I hate them, and I hate my job. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. It's not their problem, then. It's yours. Where's the love? You say you're a Christian. Where's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? So well, I got no fruit. Get in the Word. Get in prayer. Stay in fellowship. Turn on the praise and worship music in your house, in your car, in your truck, wherever you can. Immerse yourself in spiritual things, and you will become a more spiritual person. If you're fasting from all of these things, you're withering away. One of my New Year's resolutions was, I'd like to lose 60 pounds. I can't get past 0.6 pounds. I'm not losing anything. In fact, I'm getting greater and greater with every passing day. It, your weight is irrelevant in God's eyes. He didn't care about that stuff. He could not care less how, what size your biceps are, how much you work out in the gym. Did you know this? I just want to be square with you. He doesn't care about the things you care about. He doesn't care about TV. He doesn't care about the super. He doesn't care about those things that the world says, oh, this is everything. This is everything. Now, what's important? Jesus. The Word of God. And it'll always point you towards Jesus. You're preoccupied with all of the things that make no difference whatsoever. Satan's got you right where he wants you. And the only way out of that trap is to repent. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
These things are important. This, Christianity isn't something we say we believe. It's a way of life that we practice. Do you see the difference? I'm not a Christian because I say I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I am a Christian, and I do the things that Christians do because I am a Christian. I'm not trying to do these things to become a Christian. I'm already a child of God. I want to give Him glory. I want to give Him praise. Paul starts out with, in verse 3 here, with his glorious salutation. He's always praying for people. He said, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, pray for other people. Just want to put that note on the side of your margin there. Because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. Stop right there. The only two things that is noteworthy in this little tiny home fellowship is their faith and their love. What are you famous for? Your bitterness? Your anger? Your Jesus enchiladas? I don't know what you're famous for. But all of us are known for something. What this church was known for was its faith and its love. Isn't that what we should be known for? Being loving, being gracious. The world is not what we think it is. It's an opportunity to live for Christ. You're not here to accumulate worldly wealth. You're not here to please your flesh. You're here for a brief season of life to do the will and work of God. That's why you're here. And as soon as your usefulness is over, he takes you home. As soon as your job is complete, he takes you home. There's no longer you need to be here. But by virtue of the fact that you just took your last breath, there's still a work that he has for you. Are you pursuing that? Jesus, what do you have for me today? Who do you want me to love? Who do you want me to minister to? Who do I need to forgive? What part of the scripture do you want me to be studying today? Lord, can I pray for the people that run this country? Because it seems to be a bit of a hot mess today. Pray. Pray for it. Engage God in, in these areas of life. Known for their faith and their love. And he mentions that there in verse 4. <clears throat> I don't know what I'm famous for. Obviously, my wardrobe. Obviously, my svelte physique. My love of hot dogs. Everybody keeps saying hot dogs. I don't know where you're coming from, and I do not know what you're talking about. <laughs> Verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored for you in heaven. Say, in heaven. Don't look for wealth and success here. He'll give you what you need to get by, but you're supposed to be stocking away eternal reward. Where does it say? In heaven. The health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine says, no, 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 no. You can have it here. Here's the problem with that. It's not scriptural. Jesus said, where your riches lie, there your heart lies also. Your riches are tied to this world. That's where your heart's tied to. You're socking away eternal reward in heaven. That's where your heart is. The things of this world, while you can say they're, they're fascinating or they're pretty. Or, you know, somebody else, the other day, I pulled up something on the computer and they said, Oh, look at this new Ferrari. Isn't it beautiful? And it was one of the most beautiful cars I ever saw in my life. I thought, that is gorgeous. looks like it was designed in a wind tunnel by angels. It, it was a beautiful, beautiful car. Does that mean I'm going to buy one? No. Oh, crud, no. <laughs> but I can say a pretty car is a pretty car without lusting after it. Yeah. I don't need it. A home in the Brobner? I don't want a home in the Brobner. Do you have any idea what the property taxes are on that? You don't want to go there. You know, food, clothing, and shelter. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all of those things will be added to you as well. It's a matter of priority. Is God your first pursuit, your highest priority? He must be. He must be. Because if you're barking up the long, wrong tree long enough, you're going to wind up very frustrated. Very frustrated. Oh, I made it my goal to be a millionaire by uh, the time I was 30 years of age. Well, when you turn 50, you can look back and tell me how well that worked for you. I don't know any millionaires. In fact, I don't see any millionaires. I don't want to be a millionaire. I want to please a life that's pleasing to God. I want to, I want to please God. That's my whole life's ambition. 
I don't, I don't have or, or want anything else. The other things that I once thought were important to me, they've fallen away a long time ago. The stuff that I used to think mattered so much, it just it doesn't matter anymore. What, notice what he says in verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, the word of God. That has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard about it and understood God's grace and all of its truth. I'm proud of you guys because you're growing. You're studying the Word of God in your home fellowship. You're maturing as Christians. Your faith and your love and your hope. Man, that's what you guys have become famous for. It's the most loving home fellowship I was ever a part of. The most gracious and Bible-centered home fellowship I was ever a part of. And he says in verse 7, and here uh, it came through Epaphras, a shortened form of the Greek name Epaphrodites, a masculine form of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. He was a Greek. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us, of your love in the Spirit. Notice he doesn't call him pastor. He calls him, doesn't even call him teacher. He calls him servant. Calls him servant. That should be the highest title that you and I ever ascribe to. Be a servant. Don't just take the title of a servant. Serve. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know how to begin. A few simple rules. Let's just start at your house. You go into the restroom and you find an empty roll of toilet paper. What should you do? A couple of choices. Bellow. Somebody get me some toilet paper! Or before you do business, go get it yourself. Put a new roll on there. Now, I think at my house, I'm the only one that ever puts a new roll of paper on there. Because every bathroom and every room, it's always gone. It's always empty. I think the dog eats it for lunch or something. It disappears with amazing speed. But maybe that's a test for you. And God says, I want you to take care of it. Be a servant. Let me step on some toes. I already stepped on your bottom. Let me step on your toes now. Dirty dishes in the sink. Who wants to do dirty dishes in the sink? One. Two? You're a liar. No, that's not true. <laughs> dirty dishes in the sink? Do them. But I'm a guy. That's woman's work. Got chapter and verse for that? Why don't you do the dishes in the sink? One reason only. You don't want to be a servant. Tell me I got it wrong. Do the dishes. Empty the dishwasher. I would say load the laundry, but my, I did that one time and everything came out pink. <laughs> my wife said, don't ever, don't ever do that again. I thought, you, I thought everything was like color safe. Don't, don't you just throw it all in there, a little tide and whatever, and push a button? I did. Now all of my tidy whities are pink. <laughs> but she couldn't berate me for not being a servant. I want to be a servant. When you see a need, meet a need. If there's a full trash can, empty it. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not authorized or ordained in this church to do that. E dominus vobiscum, eat your biscuits. You now have been fully authorized and ordained to empty the trash and refill the toilet papers, uh, rollers, anytime you want to. Janitor's closet halfway down the hallway, right between the men's and ladies' room. Don't take it home, but feel free to replace it here anytime you need to in the church. Be a servant. It is not difficult. Why aren't you a servant? You're lazy. You don't want to. That's not in the spirit, by the way. That's because you're in the flesh. When you're in the spirit, these things are part of what you do because you love Jesus. And he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you know what? Just step it up. Don't be lazy. Be a servant. 
It's what the church should be known for. And that was Epaphras' title as given him by the Apostle Paul. What would Paul call you and I? Would he call us servants or wannabes or lazy? What would he call us? I'd like to think that he would call us all servants. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. I love Paul's prayer life. It's, it's insightful for me. We ought to always pray for one another. <clears throat> praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Not yours, but his will. Remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Heavenly Father, not my will, but yours be done. Being a Christian is being constantly submitted to the will of God. Heavenly Father, what, do you, what decision do you want me to make here? Where do you want me to, when this person expresses a need to me, how, how would you have me answer them? How would you have me counsel this person? What would you have me involve myself with, Lord, at home or at work? I pray that God would reveal the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It starts with simply getting in touch and staying in touch with God. I remember in Jeremiah 29, the Lord said, I know the plans that I have for you. He didn't say, you know. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Takes us out of the equation, doesn't it? Our will should be submitted to his. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. The next verse has some insight. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. First things first, you pursue God. He will take care of the rest of us. What a promise we have in verse 13. You will seek me. Notice who has to do the seeking. Own it. If you're not reading your Bible daily, you're in disobedience to this Scripture. Can we just put it that way? If you're not in prayer daily, you're not doing this. And as a Christian, that should cut you to the quick. You're right, Pastor Jim, I'm not doing this. Change, repent. And start doing this. Get in the Word of God daily. Make prayer a faithful habit many times a day. You will seek me and find me. But only when you seek me with all your heart. Don't play games with God. Mean it. He should be your life, not a part of your life. He shouldn't be your first priority among many. He should be your only priority. And everything else, Jesus said, will take care of itself. God must be my one pursuit in life. I don't know what you're pursuing. But in the last days, church, I find many people pursuing many different things that put them at odds with this scripture. Seek the Lord. Why is it on us instead of God? He sent his son he gave us his word. He filled us with his Holy Spirit. He saved your soul. What else do you expect him to do? Read it for you? It is up to you and I to get in this word and say, Lord, I need to grow in this area. I need to change here. Paul's talking about this. I'm not there, Lord. Put me in that place where I become a man or a woman of prayer, where I become a servant, where I actually start doing this stuff instead of simply reading about this stuff. Practical Christianity. I love that passage in Jeremiah 29. And feel free to highlight that. God has a wonderful future for you. And if you're pursuing him, that future will be realized. Oh, I just want to know Christ. Verse 10, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. I don't even have to amplify on that. Live a holy life. It pleases the Lord. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't fool around. Don't cuss. Pretty basic stuff. Would you, would you agree with that? Pretty basic stuff. Do it. And if you've been lying or cheating or stealing, or, then stop it. Repent of it. And ask God to make you a better man or woman than that. It is God's Will. You want to know what God's will is? Verse 10 tells us. Live a life worthy. 
Live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That should be the goal of your life. Live a life that's pleasing to Him. Live a life that's bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened in all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life for He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. There's 106 words in one single sentence in that passage. That's why I read it the way I did. Now, though you use that device when you write a letter in Greek so that you take the whole thing. It's like, I want you to eat this elephant in one bite. Consider this whole thing. Live a life that's pleasing to him. And here's what that looks like. That's why he put it in one sentence. In English, that's called a run-on sentence. You can't do that. Well, it's a Greek Bible. <laughs> they can do anything they want to. Live a life that's pleasing to him. What, do, what pleases him? That you bear fruit. Didn't Jesus say, abide in me and I will abide in you, and your life will bear much fruit? Have you ever wonder what fruit he's talking about? Apples? Oranges, kumquats, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? What does it look like when you are a fruitful Christian? Let me tell you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I just describe you or the person behind you or the person sitting next to you? Wives and husbands, feel free to give each other an elbow ghost. Honey, I think he's talking about you. Room for improvement in all of us, isn't there? You pursue the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We've already learned from Jeremiah, it's up to you and I to do the seeking, but we live in an age of distraction where you probably spend more time on your cell phone and on your computer and on your television than you do in the Word of God in prayer. That's just a statement of fact. Feel free to time yourself sometime. How much time I spend on the phone, how much time I spend on, on the internet, how much time I spend watching TV, put that together. Are you, want, are you seeking out the Word of God that much? Are you praying that much? Are you in church that much? Are you a secular Christian? Or are you a Christian that's growing? Are you a lukewarm and Laodicean last days Christian? Or are you spirit-filled and on fire and pursuing the face of God Christian? Choice is really yours. But know this. There are eternal consequences for the choices you make in this life. eternal consequences for the choices that you make in this life. Choose wisely, grasshopper. Choose wisely. Don't give yourself over to the things that carry, no, that mean nothing, walking into eternity. And notice that as we bear fruit, verse 11, we become not only growing in the knowledge of God, but strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. He has resources that we can put ourselves in touch with that are limitless. So, well, I just run out of love. I just ran out of patience. Well, we'll go back to the source, get some more. It's real easy. The resource here is endless. Are you going back to the source to get it, though? That you may have great endurance and patience. It's meaning you can hang in there despite the difficulties of life. Joyfully giving thanks. Are you a thankful, Christian? Lord, I'm thankful you healed my granddaughter. Lord, you brought her through that open heart surgery when she was just six months old, Lord. You healed my son. You used a physician to replace a part of his neck last year, and he walks totally normal now. Lord, you have healed us of colds and flus times without number. He is a God who is constantly at work, but constantly wanting his people to ask him, to seek him. I mean, he's just, he has an endless reserve for you, but he's waiting for you to ask for some help. You don't ask for help, he goes, 
Why aren't you asking? It's like our father's a, a billionaire, but we're afraid to ask him for a dollar. So we live like spiritual paupers? God says, I have so much for you. Jeremiah 29, i got to take you back to that. Jeremiah 29, God says, I know, i got plans for you, man. They're plans to bless your socks off. Why are you fighting me on this? Why do you insist on your hate and your enmity and your unforgiveness and your bitterness? Why do you insist on hanging on to that which you hate and ignoring that which comes from a bountiful reserve of love? God loves you so much that if we're going to experience His blessings, it's because we do it His way, giving thanks in all circumstances is what he says in verse 12. Because we know that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28 tells us. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. You and I are going to rule and reign with Jesus, for He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Don't serve it any longer. He has delivered us from a cesspool. Don't go back to the pornography or the drugs, or the lust. Don't go back to that garbage. Don't go back to the drugs, the alcohol. He died. He died to deliver us from that. And His resources to keep us from going back to that are endless if we will just avail ourselves of them. And He brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're going to stop there, uh, pick it up at verse 15 next week. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven and I'm loved. And because of those two things, my life has meaning and purpose. If you're looking for meaning and purpose in your life, understand this. You are loved. And if you are a Christian, if you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, you're forgiven. Because you're loved and you're forgiven, your life has meaning and purpose. Seek God and draw close enough to Him to feel the warmth of His presence, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, to grow in holiness and purity, looking for opportunities to be a servant. I don't need somebody to tap me on my shoulder and say, oh, hey, can you clean up that mess in the foyer? I'm, I'm already looking for a vacuum. No, a wife doesn't have to say, honey, can you wash the dishes? Because I'm already washing dishes. I always figured that was a God-given opportunity to get the grease from out from underneath your fingernails. So I think it's totally appropriate that men should be doing the dishes all the time. Look at my fingers. <laughs> They're clean. Yay. <laughs> Let's stand together, shall we? Our God is a faithful God. Oh, how He loves us. His goodness. His goodness motivates me in so many different ways and directions. The goodness of God. Do you know Him? Do you know who He is and how much He loves you? The goodness of God. I'd like to sing about that just to tell Him, thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace. He's been so good to us. Need some guitar. Let's sing the goodness of God.